kill you. Yeah, what's wrong with the beer we got? Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another edition of Auntie Nanny. Uh, with me tonight is my bubbly and vivacious co-host, Miss Jeannie Kay. How are you, Miss Jeannie? I swear to God, you keep saying that because eventually you think I'm just going to be. <laughs> I'm kidding. Come on. Papercon's in three days, so I am pretty vivacious and bubbly over that. Oh, hey, it's Thanks. hey, it's good to have something to be happy about. And uh, the best producer money can't buy, which is good because I still don't have the money to pay him. Barry, how are you feeling now, Barry? I who? <laughs> that's that's the description. Ow, until Ow. yeah, until uh, the abscess gets sorted. So yeah. yeah. Well, that's as good a description as any. Um, I'm glad you were able to be here this evening. Uh, and you know, hopefully you'll be sorted out soon enough. Um. To be perfectly honest, Barry, um, you produce way better than I do. <laughs> I, I'm surprised, you know, we just all haven't got Barry to produce for us. Um, did Kevin have a show last night? I didn't even Yes, he think. did. Did he? talked about this beautiful baby girl, and I called and gave him a brush of shit. <laughs> talked about how that, that Dino actually um, ordered and sent me a washboard. Saw the picture on Facebook. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was hysterically funny when he read my post that I make my own laundry soap. So, um, yeah, Dino's version of humor was to spend good money to send me a real washboard, which which I did set up next to the spinning wheel and the treadle sewing machine. Not that I'll ever <laughs> use any of these three things, but I have them if I need them. So, what you're saying is you have a, an archive of a time long ago. In your yes. home. Yes, I do. No, nice. no, not an archive of time long ago. She has an Amish section. <laughs> oh, I'll, 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 I'll Dino some. Go ahead. My grandmother's stuff. But these were things that my grandmother had the treadle sewing machine and the spinning wheel that mm-hmm. she used. Right? Yeah. You, know, you, you know my philosophy about the way things are going. Um, with technology and jobs and everything, the more self-sufficient you can be, the better. You have more tools than I have for, at, 
for that end. So that's kind of cool. What I was going to say is all I got from Dino was a marquee. So you got a washboard. I'm jealous. But you got a marquee. I know. Yeah, I mean, a marquee. <laughs> I swear I'm not rubbing anybody's face in it. Just saying. I know. I, I'm telling you. You guys, I'm telling you. Oh, oh this is being recorded, so I shouldn't say this. But Dino will never say <laughs> it, so I can say it. If Dino has got a velocity on one of the setups that he's using at VaporCon, I'm yeah. going to steal it. So when Dino starts <laughs> bitching to everybody about a velocity coming up missing at VaporCon, just know, don't tell him that I stole it, and don't tell him to come here looking for it. Get one for me while you're there. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, I, I guess... I'm using my marquee right now. That's that's the one I made that multicolored tip for, and and I you'll really like it, Jim. Did you build it out and use it? Yeah, I do like it. I like it a lot. I have, yeah. And I think it's very easy to build on. It's much easier to build on than most atomizers I've used. Do you know what I mean? It's just not... Most of them have, like, no space. And I, I don't have, like, little girly hands. I've, I can't even believe I'm saying this. But I have hands that are more like a spatula, actually. Um, you know, my I have doctor's hands, like a surgeon. So my hands are kind of big. So I don't have those petite little girly hands that would be really great for building these little teeny tiny things. And, and this is just perfect. The way everything's set up is just perfect. And I know... God, I've never heard anybody say they had a hard time building on it, ever, because mm. it, it's yeah, almost impossible. Kevin did have somebody call in and pretend to be that that guy that he thinks doesn't exist that makes that juice, that whatever dude. <laughs> <laughs> God. I don't. Yeah, that's how much attention I paid to that. But anyway, Kevin's been, <laughs> the guy Kevin's been bitching about for weeks that he says doesn't he doesn't think he really exists. Right. So to to prank, you know. And his entire audience, yet again, um, had one of his employees call in and pretend to be this guy and pretend that this guy's like this really big stoner. And it, it was it was pretty freaking funny. <laughs> well, I feel bad. It, yeah, the guy bitched about the screws in <laughs> the grub screws. Dino was always pissed. It was funny. He, you know, sooner or later, Kevin is going to realize that Dino always pranks better than he does and just stop. Yeah. Well. Now yeah, all, all you even... need to say to Kevin is remember the the, the sanitary towel. <laughs> I was gonna say, you know, it, it, <clears throat> Dino Dino sits on something till he gets an idea that's so good he can involve all his friends. And, and, and that Dino and that Kevin is mentally scarred from for the rest of his life. So Kevin should really come on, Kev, stop. Yeah, well, God, <laughs> he'll probably open up one of his freaking unrinsed bag salads and find frogs in there or locusts or something. Hmm, locusts. Yeah, locusts. Why not? You know, I was just thinking traditional old school plagues. That would scar Kevin for life. He wouldn't know how to deal with like a biblical plague. That would make him insane. Just well, Let's face it, a normal plague would probably be just as effective. <laughs> well, yeah, but who's got, you know, Who's got the resources for that, really? Well, never mind. Um, so I was freaked out the other day. I don't really watch much TV, and I don't really watch much news, but every once in a while I'll um, look at RT America. Mm-hmm. And I looked at RT America, and I probably should not have done it because coalition forces hit a Doctors Without Borders hospital. 
in Afghanistan for 30 minutes, but oops, it's an accident. I am, um, I'm really blown away by the people who actually believe that that is kind of accidental. Yeah, three, but, three waves of planes was accidental. It wasn't yes, just a single and, attack. Don't, don't worry. Don't worry. They're going to investigate themselves. The thing that kills me is, I mean, this happens a lot. It happens in a lot of countries. Um, usually it's it's NATO doing shit like this. But I can't say that it's always them. But whenever there's a hospital or a school... The other side is always given precise GPS locations of things not to bomb. Assuming, I guess, that people will actually follow the rules of war. Well, uh, on this case, they are. in this case, apparently the Afghans told the Americans, we saw some terrorists in there. And that was excuse enough to bomb the hospital oh, almost flat. So. Right. <clears throat> well, yeah, since we're talking about Doctors Without Borders, I guess I'm going there first. Government demands new laws to stop gun violence, then bombs Doctors Without Borders Hospital. The United States just carried out an aerial bombing that blew apart a Doctors Without Borders Hospital in the Afghan city of Kunz. The bombing took place in spite of the fact that Doctors Without Borders had repeatedly informed the U.S. military military of their hospital locations. Even after telling the military that the hospital was being bombed, the bombardment continued for approximately half an hour. It is virtually impossible to imagine a scenario where this bombing was an accident. But in spite of the death toll of nearly 19 people, media and government statements on the Oregon school shooting have have vastly overshadowed this incident. All of the common themes and stereotypes about school shooters failed to stick with this recent act of mass murder. But instead of looking at underlying issues that led to the shooter's obvious mental illness, the mainstream media and politicians have focused on guns. This would not be so odd and ironic if it were not for the fact that the same president who went before the United States to decry the shooting and call for more gun laws in the wake of the shooting has not had anything to say about banning armed drones, or even aerial bombardments of foreign lands that are clearly not trying to invade the United States. So tonight, as those of us who are lucky enough to hug our kids a little closer are thinking about the families who aren't so fortunate, President Obama said Friday night in the James S. Brady press briefing room. The room was named for a man severely wounded by a would-be assassin's bullet. The choice, obviously, was deliberate. I'd ask the American people to think about how they can get our government to change these laws and to save these lives and let these people grow up. The president assumed that these new laws would have saved the innocent victims of the shooting. Maybe they would have, maybe they would not have, but instead of giving direct proposals for laws and explaining how they would have kept guns out of the hands of the deranged, the president offered only vague statements about unidentified gun laws that we just have to believe will stop these school shootings. Do we need more gun laws? Do we just need to enforce the ones we have? Do we need gun control at the point of sale rather than through government? All of these are questions that can be asked in a separate debate. The discussion at hand is not that debate one way or the other. It is commentary on the fact that the mainstream media, government, and President Obama went on so passionately about this shooting and then had virtually nothing to say in the wake of the Doctors Without Borders bombing. 
when the U.S. airstrike was carried out early Saturday, killing at least 19 people, no one in the government issued an apology or a call to end such acts of violence. They didn't even attack the objects that created such devastation. There was no push to ban bombs from the military or to limit them to certain very strictly defined missions. Doctors Without Borders tells us that the military strike killed 12 staffers and 7 patients, including 3 children, and injured 37 others. The bombing constitutes a grave violation of international humanitarian law, Doctors Without Borders said. There are many patients and staff who remain unaccounted for. The numbers may grow as a clearer picture develops of the aftermath of this horrific bombing, they added, saying all killed were Af saying that all killed were Afghan civilians. It would seem that someone in the U.S. military apparently thought they could color-code who to kill. Finally, after a long and deafening silence, the White House released a statement from President Obama offering condolences to Doctors Without Borders from the American people. The Department of Defense has launched a full investigation. Oh, thank God you can trust them to investigate their own. <laughs> and we... <laughs> we will await results of that inquiry before making a definitive judgment as to the circumstances of this tragedy. The president said, I expect a full accounting of the facts and circumstances. But these words were quite tame, timid, and lacking any sense of passion when compared to his words about the Oregon shooting. And this wasn't the only time the president expressed such passion about a school shooting. Are we really prepared to say that we're powerless in the face of such carnage that politics are too hard, Mr. Obama asked after the Sandy Hook shooting with passion that matched his words about the Oregon mass murder. Why is there not at least equal outrage and passion for the Afghan dead? Are their lives worth less than American lives? Or perhaps the politicians and the media have a pro-military agenda. Perhaps they also want to see firearms exclusively in the hands of the police who gunned down pretty much anyone they want. Well, I didn't write this, sorry. <laughs> With relative impunity and in the hands of the military who carried out this bombardment of innocent doctors and children. What do you think? Are we supposed to listen to a government that just bombed a Doctors Without Borders hospital when they talk to me about gun violence? Sorry, I just, I'm still really pissed about that. Really well, pissed. Yeah, I mean, it's a standard joke well, semi-joke amongst British Armed Forces that the, the the worst situation to be in is to be sent into a combat zone and have the Americans backing you. Because <laughs> the first Iraq war, most of the deaths from the British Armed Forces were caused by friendly fire from the American forces. Well, yeah. You know... A lot of the problem, and I'm, I'm going to say this again because I try to look at, at every side. I used to think I was a libertarian, and now I think I'm something entirely different. Because I'm, I'm starting to see there's a lot of ugly poison in both sides of the political debate. And I think we can, oh, yeah. as human beings, we can rise above a lot of this. Um, but a lot of these people that you see now are the direct result of policy started in the 1980s by Ronald Reagan. Because a lot of those crazy people would be locked up in state mental institutions if it weren't for that. You know, we had them. We had places that took care of people that were sick. We had better medical care then. 
We didn't have doctors slapping every kid who didn't pay attention on SSRI uptake re-inhibitors. I mean, we just didn't have that. And we have that all the time now. And there's actually a bunch of neuroscientists who say they don't think that this is the way to treat mental illness because yeah, it's not a one-size-fits-all yeah. thing. Yeah, I've, don't I've know been wrong. on those drugs and they did absolutely nothing. <laughs> well, it, for some people it does absolutely nothing and then for other people what they're finding is there's almost always something involved in the medical backgrounds of all these people that commit these mass shootings and boy this this it feels like I should have been having a show like this every couple of weeks for the last couple of years and the, the last show I did like this I really talked about it um, I'm not going to so much tonight because I like to talk about different things and not have one subject that makes me want to scream but mental illness is not a one size fits all thing Paxil isn't going to work for everybody um, drugs aren't going to work for everybody for some people, what might be best is giving them access to medical marijuana. For other people, they need to be heavily drugged with lithium and sent in the corner to drool. I mean, there's different shades of gray, but the doctors, the drug companies are perfectly happy to take people who probably shouldn't be on these medications and slap them all on it. It's profit. Well, so, It doesn't yeah. matter if people die to that yeah, the, the pharmaceutical companies, yeah, just look at us as petri dishes. Mm -hmm. Let's throw drugs at people and see what happens. Did you see the post that I put up to you? I did. I, I liked your post because I think it's ridiculous. You are never... You, you have two choices. You can be completely safe and live in a panopticon, which I don't want. Or you can have liberty and I, I'm starting to get the feeling that liberty what that word actually means is not being protected not being coddled having the right to make your own decisions and knowing the truth about what your government does I have the feeling looking at society today that that's not for everybody that they don't want that I do uh, and I think a lot of other people do too. What we're doing, what we're creating, that should scare us. That should really scare us. We can close the mental hospitals and turn the criminally insane out. We can let the drug companies and the global trade treaties rule roughshod over us until we're all making 11 cents an hour. And we can do this by our ignorance and by not paying attention to what happens. And now paying attention is hard. And it feels fruitless. Um, but knowledge actually is power. What you don't know can hurt you. What you do know, you can step back from and keep away from. I'm not so sure that what the government wants to do what it has tried to do is right and I'm starting to think in many ways that they're a cancer on us more than anything else everything they touch they destroy everything they have they've stolen from someone else and every right you thought you had vanishes in their wake 
So I'm really not fond of the government, and I'm super not fond of them this week. Does anybody have a, a happier topic? <laughs> not really. I live in the UK. No, not really. We're just going to let you rant. <laughs> okay. So you were telling me that the Doctors Without Borders Hospital was bombed because other people went to the government and said, we saw terrorists in there. Yeah, the, basically Afghan forces apparently reported seeing Taliban near the hospital. Has anybody ever seen that press conference from 2014 where Putin is talking to the press, the world press? It's a world press like meeting. They have the heads of European countries that talk to them and then the heads of you know, other countries that talk to them. And it's sort of a UN thing that happens. Um, I should really get the link because they've cut all the audio out. So it's not really distracting. And you can see what Putin's actually saying, where he talks about, you know, IS and Assad and so many of the things that have happened. And it's, it's pretty interesting to see that perspective from the other side of the world. I'm not saying it's right or it's wrong. But it's really interesting to see that, and I should well, probably I, I get noticed that for you. the I noticed the um, the Western backed rebels that that aren't <laughs> ISIL, ISIS, whatever they were calling themselves this week. Um, <laughs> Whoever you are, who's you this knew the Russians started bombing because yeah, the Russians are using bigger bombs. They're being uh, <clears throat> less discriminate, shall we say? They're, They're just bombing the shit out of everything. Yeah. They are. Um, a lot of the problem with that is you have to look at who actually armed these people. If we go back, because you and I have talked about the House of Saud. Yeah. And this is like not something most people will talk about. But House of Saud is really responsible for a lot of the atrocities you see happening today. Um, because at that time... In the 1960s and the early 70s, before Jimmy Carter and Henry Kissinger got together and decided that they didn't want this sort of westernizing force that was happening over in Saudi Arabia, and they decided to back and, in fact, create the Mujahideen, um, they, who were fucking crazy people, and they knew it, but that was okay that they were crazy because they were going to sell us their oil and sell it to us for cheap. Allow us to peg the dollar to it. Make it the currency that all oil had to be bought with. As long as we never interfered in their religion, and in the religion of anyone in that area, they agreed to work with us. Now, all of a sudden, you see these people, and they have a seat on the Human Rights Commission for the UN. Yeah. Do you realize last week... They placed an ad in the paper, Saudi Arabia, placed an ad in the paper calling for eight new executioners to go around the street beheading people. That's what happens there. Um, At least they're, they're kind of open about it, whereas Dubai, everybody thinks is wonderful and they're actually worse. They are worse. And... A lot of what you see coming out of that region comes directly from those people. 
Yeah. House of the Wahhabists. Yes. Yeah. The Wahhabists. Yeah. It it really is all them that have these. They have taken the people and radicalized them. But our government. Although even the, even the Saudis are now bombing. Oh yes. <laughs> it's like oh oh it's gone too far. Well. Um, well, they gave the crazy people funds and weapons. So yeah. Well, of course we funded them. We funded them. Yes. My government funded them because they wanted to go after Assad. And then well, what they don't understand is that these people, once you've given them weapons and trained them, there are other coalitions that will pay more. Yeah. And well, it's the same in if, Afghanistan. They complain that the Taliban are really hard to defeat. Well, no shit. A lot of them got trained by the SAS. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, here's the thing. We trained them. They were trained by some of the best people out there in actual terrorism. Yeah. In what terrorism is, we train people to do that, to take down our enemies. Well, when the coalition People went, forget. Yeah, when the coalition uh, first went to Afghanistan, there was the wonderful thing where SAS troops got recalled to India. Mm -hmm. They got back to their base in India. And then they were told to go back to Afghanistan to hunt down the guys they'd just been training. You know, um, people don't look at what their government does. If you looked at who your government was arming. Moderate Syrian rebels. Really? So basically we're actually supplying arms and training to the people that we're using our tax dollars to fight at $20 billion a day, I might add, this costs us. Yeah. Well, the British are mainly giving weapons... To, well, when they were giving weapons, we stopped giving weapons directly. They probably are still giving weapons, but not directly, at least. But at least we were only giving them to the Kurds, who are the most repressed people in the area, which is fair enough. But, and of course, mm -hmm. even the Kurds have taken the piss with that and have started using those weapons in Turkey. And that's unsurprising since they were repressed by the Turks as well. So, yeah. It's just a screwed up area in general. Well, so. you know, we really should have not... Should have not given them modern weapons. Should have just left them with the 19th century muskets and single-shot right. weapons. Right, but... You know, we we started by drawing the borders. Yeah. When I say we, I, I don't think this is anything modern Americans or modern French people or modern British people are responsible for. But this is what your leaders started. And then... Yeah, it was all... The plan all started rolling out around 1910 or so. Yes. Just before World War One. Yes. Like, ooh, oil. Yeah, how can we get the oil? Then, then the First World bit, War was handy. This bit, and we'll yeah. draw some borders here. And, oh, well, we've put you next to your ancient enemy. Oh, no worries. Because, yeah, before World War One, the Ottomans... Ottoman Empire. Didn't, ...weren't yeah. letting the Western powers come in and nab all the resources. So, yeah. Nope. So, yeah, we did this. We did this, and yet we keep playing the same game. And the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. We need to stop this shit. This shit really does need to stop. Rich, powerful men keep sending the poor young men and women of our countries 
to war, to die, horrible deaths, or to come back all screwed up to protect their profit margin, and it has to stop. Okay, I think I'm. I think I've about run out of steam on this because <laughs> I'm really going to go off. Um, okay. Um, to go off onto a different topic, which probably isn't going to be as interesting, but at least I'm not going to start crying talking about it. So it's it's been kind of an interesting week. Um, did anybody hear about the Experian hack? Uh-huh. So you heard about the Experian hack. So you you yeah. know, like I know, that they had been hacked for over two years, and the government, who mm. is not the most brilliant group of people in the world, had to come to them and tell them, uh, by the way, your stuff has been hacked. Yeah, it is, it is quite good when, when you know, due, due to the government spying program, they notice somebody else is already doing it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, just came by to tell you, uh... While we're think... rifling around in your computers, we couldn't help but notice. Somebody <laughs> exactly. else's as well. Yeah, yeah we, just, we just... We just wanted to tell you that, uh, you know, your customer's data might be in danger and, uh, might be a whole lot of, you know, data breaches, safety breaches, and, you know, monetary breaches. And the guy, uh, you know... Well, and it was linked right into um, their credit track. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, the guy that just got approved for the Bentley that has no job and (laughs) hasn't had a job, his credit score might not really be over 800. (laughs) It's just ridiculous to me that the government had to come to Experian and tell them, right, you didn't know then. You might want to mention something to your customers. Okay. Hackers there's an awful lot of customers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's an awful lot of customers. Yeah, there is. Well, I mean, when they when they hacked into Experian, apparently all the government found that they had stolen was T-Mobile customers' information. Mm-hmm. Still bad enough. Still bad enough. It's bad enough that your government has it. And mm-hmm. various government... What and- side company is our government mad at right now? <laughs> because I bet no, I'm and I'm being only half funny because I know. You, see, whichever cellular company our federal government is pissed at is the ones that they're going to come back and say this is who stole all the other cell companies' data. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, our our government is actually really, really famous for shifting blame. Um, well, that, that's why I went off so bad earlier about Doctors Without Borders, but I'm not going to talk about that again. Okay. Um, the credit firm Experian is the latest company targeted by hackers. Actually, no, it's not. In this case, the personal information of 15 million T-Mobile customers was stolen. Hackers have stolen the personal information of 15 million T-Mobile customers and potential customers in the U.S., including social security numbers, dates of birth, and home addresses. See, your, your data isn't safe. Uh, Experience says it notified law enforcement as soon as it discovered the breach. That's not true. We know that's not true. We know that's not true because it's been broken that that breach has been wide open for two years. It was the government that went to them and told them. But anyway, this was their story a few days ago. 
Uh, Experian said it notified law enforcement as soon as it discovered the breach. T-Mobile uses Experian to check out the credit ratings of potential customers. According to Experian, the break-in affects anyone who applied for T-Mobile USA postpaid or device financing after September 1st, 2013 through September 16th, 2015. In a blog post on the company's website, T-Mobile CEO John Lagari wrote that he was incredibly angry about the breach. He pledged that he takes customers and prospective customers' privacy very seriously. If you did, you would have had better security in place. Just saying. Um, Lagari assured customers that T-Mobile systems had not been compromised and offered free credit monitoring for two years for anyone who may have been affected. Experience said on its website that it doesn't know who is behind the hack and that it is taking, quote, necessary steps to prevent further breaches. It directed customers to remain vigilant against identity theft and watch for phishing email scams that could ask for personal information like bank account numbers. This is the latest in a string of high-profile hacks, including the adultery website Ashley Madison, Sony Pictures, and retail retail giant Target. The Associated Press reports that nearly 800 data breaches were reported last year by U.S. organizations, according to the Identity Theft Resource Center. So, everything's about profit. Screw you people. And, oops. But but the CEO's (laughs) really, really angry. I mean, he probably had to get off his yacht to come and be angry. (laughs) Very true. Very true. Um, And since we're talking about rich assholes, (laughs) tell me about Lord Sugar. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Tell me what happened this week. Well, yeah, he he thinks uh, nobody in the West is poor, really. That's uh, that's right. Uh, as Here's... I said, I, I said before the show, he has got a point in a certain way, but mm-hmm. it still doesn't come across when you're a millionaire <laughs> telling it, it people you're not poor. Badly, yeah. it really does. But then he started it... off working class with nothing. So, yeah, well, he's got rich funny. and a bit crazy. It's funny how it changes when all of a sudden you've got money. Yeah. You know, then, then he, you have an impact. He's then quite stable a for a millionaire. Who's president and all the politics. I don't know. It just, it came across as scummy and smarmy from that guy. You know, Also, it gets his no name, it gets his name in the press and, and the next series of UK Apprentice is about to come on air. So, yeah. <laughs> Not that I'm cynical or anything. No, you're not cynical. I'm not cynical <laughs> either. So I just thought it was funny. But, I mean, his reasoning being that everybody has a mobile phone means that you're not poor. I just wanted to smack the guy. Do you know how many people in Africa actually have mobile phones? Not that it does them any fucking good. You can have the world's greatest iPhone in the middle of Africa and it's not going to do much for you. What well, is? Well, you mean you of. die quicker because some nutcase with a machete probably will steal it from you <laughs> and to do so might hack you up first. Well, yeah, but I, I guess you can call 911. Oh. 112. <laughs> yeah. International emergency number. Ah. Well, yeah. I guess you could do that now. Cops in, like, Russia instead? <laughs> I uh, guess. No, I guess. Um, so, yeah, I guess I beat that one to death, too. Um, 
France's government aims to give itself and the NSA carte blanche to spy on the world. The United States makes an improper division between surveillance conducted on residents of the United States and the surveillance that is conducted with almost no restraint upon the rest of the world. This double standard has proved poisonous to the rights of Americans and non-Americans alike. In theory, Americans enjoy better protections. In practice, there are no magical sets of servers and internet connections that can carry only American conversations. To violate the privacy of everyone else in the world, the U.S. inevitably scoops up its own citizens' data. Establishing nationality as a basis for discrimination also encourages intelligence agencies to make the obvious end run, spying on each other's citizens, and then sharing that data. Treating two sets of innocent targets differently is already a violation of international human rights law. In reality, it reduces everyone to the same lower standard. Now France's government is about to make the same error as the U.S. practice with its new Surveillance de Communication Electronics and Nationales Bill, currently being rushed through the French Parliament. An open letter led by France's, oh my God, something... La Quatre de Net. La Quatre du Net. Yeah. It was still better than I was going to butcher it as. <laughs> and signed today by over 30 civil society groups, including the Electronic Frontier Foundation, states France's legislators must reject this bill to protect the rights of individuals everywhere, including those in France. By legalizing France's own plans to spy on the rest of the world, France would take a step to establishing the NSA model as an acceptable global norm. Passing the law would undermine France's already weak surveillance protections for its own citizens, including lawyers, journalists, and judges, and it would make challenging the NSA's practices far more difficult for France and other states. The new bill comes as the result of France's Constitutional Council's review of the country's latest mass surveillance bill, which was passed with little parliamentary opposition in July. God, does that sound familiar? The council passed most of that bill on the basis of its minor concession to the oversight and proportionality, but rejected the sanctions on international surveillance, which contained no limits to what France might do. France already spies on the world. In July, the French news magazine La Orbes revealed a secret decree dating from at least 2008, which funded a French intelligence service project to intercept and analyze international data traffic passing through submarine cable intercepts. The degree authorized the inception of cable traffic from 40 countries, including Algeria, Morocco, Sunia, Iraq, Syria, Sub-Saharan Africa, Russia, China, India, and the United States. The report states that France's intelligence agency, the General Directorate for External Security, spent $775 million on the project. Given that the Constitutional Council implied that such practices were almost certainly unlawful, as it is, the French government has now scrambled to create a framework that could ex excuse it. Under the new proposed law, France's intelligence agencies still have an incredibly broad remit. The law concentrates the power of the grant-wide-ranging surveillance permission in the office of the Prime Minister, who can sign off on mass surveillance of communication sent or received from overseas. Such surveillance can be conducted when the essential interests of foreign policy or the essential economic and scientific interests of France, giving the executive the widest possible scope 
to conduct surveillance. The original surveillance law included limits on data retention when spying on French nationals, 30 days for the content of communications, 4 years for metadata, 6 years for encrypted data. New international limits are much longer, 1 year, 6 years, and 8 years respectively. Law's authors do not justify this longer period, nor do they explain how the intelligence agencies will be able to separate the data from each class of target without collecting, analyzing, and filtering them all. The collapsing divide between the lawful, warranted surveillance of ordinary citizens and the wide-ranging capabilities of the intelligence services to collect signals intelligence on foreign powers and agents has ended up corroding both domestic and global privacy rights. The U.S. has taken advantage of the lesser protections for non-U.S. persons to include the dragnet surveillance of everyone who uses the Internet outside of the U.S. Because unprotected foreigners' data is mixed up somewhat more protected communications of Americans, the U.S. government believes that it can, quote, incidentally, scoop up its own citizens' data and sort it out later under nobody's oversight but its own. If the French Parliament passes this bill, it will mean that France has decided to embody and execute the same practices as the NSA in its own law. It is a short-sighted attempt to cover France's existing secret practices, but the consequences are far-reaching. The limited protections that were included in the original surveillance bill, including assurances that French journalists, judges, and lawyers would be protected from dragnet surveillance, will be undermined by the inevitable inclusion in the vacuuming up of all internet traffic. The attempt by EU countries to rein back the NSA surveillance plans called for by the United States to respect international human rights standards and data protection principles will provoke the response that the U.S. is simply exercising the powers that an EU member has already granted itself. By creating and ex executing a double standard, France's government dooms everyone to a single lower standard. It cannot simply shrug off its responsibilities to human rights, its partners in Europe, and the privacy rights of foreigners. If it does so, it will end up undermining the French people's privacy and security as much as it undermines that of the rest of the world. Not shocking? Yeah, France got jealous and <laughs> wants a share of all the prime spy stuff. <laughs> Yes, but their excuse is the same excuse it's always been. And, and that excuse is because terrorists. It adds to this, sort of, that I mentioned before the show. Yeah, Edward Snowden got interviewed. Yeah. By the BBC. Mm -hmm. and, and it's all about Smurfs. <laughs> I've put the link in chat and I'll put it in later. Did you say Smurfs? Smurfs, yes. The little blue, blue things, things. yes. Yeah. Apparently, apparently, GCHQ named lots of its programs after Smurfs. <laughs> um, right then. But yeah, the headline says it all. Smartphones can be taken over. Basically, they can remotely turn on your smartphone and get it to listen to what you're doing. It's really Stuff funny. Like I don't know any. Has anybody actually seen Citizen Four? Yeah. You've seen it. Do you remember the part where, okay, Snowden's now in Russia and all of his international human rights lawyers are gathered in this flat somewhere yeah. that they've just swept for bugs, by the way, because nobody's really paranoid. They take the batteries out of all their cell phones. Yep. They take their cell phones and put them in the fucking freezer. Yep. 
there's a reason for that. Yep, because GCHQ knows how to control your phone remotely, yeah. <laughs> and if GCHQ knows... The NSA know. Exactly. So, yeah. So this it's, is this is him putting out a bit more information. Uh, okay. So I'm sure you'll enjoy that when all the information rolls all over the place tomorrow, <laughs> probably. Um, oh, you know I will. Yes, the GCHQ Smurf Suite. Yeah. Oh, God. you, you got to hand it to GCHQ. While they're a completely evil and nasty group, they do have a sense of humour, at least. Well, <laughs> there is something funny about naming all your collection programs and your various other programs after cartoon characters. Yeah. There is something very humorous about that. So. Maybe we shouldn't live on our phones. What do you think, guys? Well, I don't, so... Yeah. Well, you know what I'm saying. Yeah. I don't. Mine's a phone. All I use it for is, like, texts and calls. So, that's why I don't have a really super-duper high-powered smartphone. It's also... It's almost so dumb that it's basically pretty secure. Although not quite, because the older stuff gets, the easier it is to hack. Yeah. Uh, so, did anybody hear what happened to the mayor from Stockton, Massachusetts? No, no but I'm about to. Oh, he you are. Arrested. He what? Arrested. He got arrested. Is that guy that got arrested for breaking the law? No. Oh, this is even better. Stockton Mayor was briefly detained on return flight from China. Doesn't sound so bad. It gets worse. The mayor of Stockton was briefly detained and had two of his laptops and a cell phone confiscated by Homeland Security agents at the San Francisco International Airport earlier this week after returning from a trip to China, according to a statement by the mayor. The mayor of Stockton was briefly detained and had two of his laptops and his cell phone confiscated by Homeland Security agents at the San Francisco International Airport earlier this week after returning. Yeah. Okay. Mayor Anthony R. Silva, who was elected in November 2012, had traveled to China for a mayor's conference, he said in a statement. Upon his return home on Monday... Silva was briefly detained by the Department of Homeland Security agents and had his belongings searched, he said. A few minutes later, DHS agents confiscated all my electronic devices, including my personal cell phone. Ultimately, they were not willing or able to produce a search warrant or any court document suggesting they had a legal right to take my property. In addition, they were persistent about requiring my passwords for all devices, Silva said. Silva was not allowed to leave the airport until he gave his passwords to the agents, which the mayor's personal attorney, Margaret Reichel, claimed is illegal. It is illegal. It's a digital Fourth Amendment violation. The mayor told the agents, said the agents told him confiscating property from travelers at the airport was in fact routine and not unusual and promised to return the items within a few days. Silva was also told he had, quote, no right for a lawyer to be present and that being a U.S. citizen, quote, did not entitle me to rights to rights that I probably thought. 
He has yet to get his property returned, according to Reichel. The mayor said Reichel contacted the U.S. Attorney's Office in Sacramento, but was told, quote, we can neither confirm or deny if we have the mayor's possessions. On Friday, Lauren Horwood, the spokeswoman for the U.S. Attorney's Office in Sacramento, said they had no comment on the mayor's statement and that they could not confirm the facts presented in his statement. Our policy is not to confirm or deny investigations, Horwood said. James Schwab, spokesman for the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, also would not disclose why Silva was detained. We can't control what the mayor's representatives say, but that won't dictate what we will or won't release to the media, Schwab said. Our priority is assuring the integrity of the investigative process, and generally speaking, we don't acknowledge that an investigation is underway unless or until charges have been filed, arrests have been made, or documents are publicly filed with the court that confirm a probe is taking place. For his part, Silva said he's happy to cooperate and comply with these inspection procedures if they are in fact routine and legal, which we know they're not. Silva, however, raised several concerns with the incident. I think the American people should be extremely concerned about their personal rights and privacy, he said. As I was being searched at the airport, there was a Latino couple to my left and an Asian couple to my right also being aggressively searched. I had briefly had to remind myself that this was not North Korea or Nazi Germany. This was the land of the free. Oh my God, sorry. Silva went on to say that he is confident that any forensic search of my personal devices will never show illegal or inappropriate activities of any sort. Silva said the trip to China was sponsored by China Silicon Valley, a California nonprofit corporation committed to promoting investment and business between China and Silicon Valley. Sounds great, doesn't it? Yeah, wonderful. Makes me want to go back to old-fashioned technology. Pen and paper. There might actually be a problem with the law airport. There actually is. I mean, a lot of Chinese, de- a lot of devices that have gone to China and connected over Wi-Fi connections come back with malware. Yeah. I know that. He does not know that. I, I don't, how the fuck do you get to be a mayor and go deal with Silicon Valley and not have at least a little bit of general knowledge about that? You know? Yeah. I don't get it. But yeah, the the thing about his rights. Uh, yeah, his rights are probably slightly different if he, depending where he is in the airport. International law is different from. You have to bring up the ethnicity of the people to the left and to the right. Yeah. Of course he did. You know, why why the fuck did he have to bring that up? Why didn't he just say. Why did he have to bring it up? Couple to my right. Because. Because he thinks, A, he thinks he's being all inclusive, and B, he thinks that he'll get some instinctive sort of sympathy for that. But then, 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 then he loses ridiculous. by mentioning North Korea or Nazi Germany. Yeah, but you know, I understand that feeling. This he went is why and God I don't fly it. anymore. Yeah. The last time I flew was before 9-11 and I won't be getting on a plane again. I'm sorry, I just won't. I am not a criminal. I refuse to be searched. I'm a decent, law-abiding human being. Just wants to go peaceably about my life. And I think everyone... 
who gets caught up in something like that pretty much feels the same way, except for Jeannie, who looks like a bomb, and they are fine with her walking through the airport. <laughs> and then they get pissed at me. Then they, and they have the audacity to get pissed at me when I say, I don't think your machine's working right. <laughs> and they're like, like, oh, it works fine. <laughs> I mean, and I've explained it to them. I'm like, look, I have metal leads sewn to my spinal cord in my neck. They're sewn there. They look like little paddles and wires that run underneath my skin all the way down to a lithium-ion battery pack that's implanted in my back. And it didn't pick that up. Well, yeah, but, you know, don't forget that... And he pissed at me, so fuck him. PSA can kiss all of my fat white ass. (laughs) Uh, yeah. What a... Well, they can, and mine too. They're the reason I I don't I don't even like going near the airport. It just it makes me feel dirty. Um, but don't forget what I was going to say about those scanners. Don't forget they had to replace a whole shit ton of them because they weren't doing correct imaging. So you do know what we did with them, right? Sold them to schools, probably. No, we put them in our prison system. Oh well, it's sort of the same. Okay, <laughs> well. Actually, yes. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, we actually agree on that. Um, So, yeah. I'm not really sure where to go. I didn't really... Okay, this was pretty good. Um, Can we keep our technology from slipping out of control? And I asked that question, noting that yesterday, Germany sent out its first fully automated 18-wheeler on the Autobahn. There was no human involved in driving that. So I just figure this is a good story for that. Can we keep our technology from slipping out of control? In A Dangerous Master, a bioethicist argues for debate before tech is adopted. A Dangerous Master is reminiscent of, and sometimes even references, about a million popular books and movies. Robert Heinlein's I Will Fare No Evil, Isaac Asimov's I, Robot, David Mitchell's The Bone Doctors, Karashuto Ishaguto's Never Let Me Go, Neil Stevenson's The Diamond Aids, Age, Gattaca, The Matrix, The X-Men, The Phantom Menace. But while these works and various dystopias they depict are characterized as speculative fiction, Wendell Wallach's book and the various dystopias it depicts warrant neither qualifier. They reside firmly in the real world, or could imminently, if we do not heed his warning to vigilantly track technology developments and constantly assess if the benefits they provide are worth the risks they inevitably engender. All technological innovations, starting with the fire bought down from Olympus by Prometheus, are hopelessly entangled mess of risks and benefits. Wallace is in a good position to know. He's chaired the Technology of Ethics and Study Group at Yale University's Interdisciplinary Center for Bioethics for most of its 13-year existence. He knows that scientific inquiry and discovery will inevitably lead to technologies that can be used for ill as well as good, and he is okay with that. He does not want to curb scientific inequality or discovery. He just doesn't want us adopting technologies blindly. As of now, that seems to be exactly what we're doing. 
many potentially dangerous or at the very least highly controversial technologies become facts on the ground before the public is even aware of them. The public, meaning us, never get the chance to reflect on the utility of these innovations and debate whether or not they are worth it. Wallach gives numerous examples of the trade-offs inherent in adopting new technologies, some of which are familiar from headlines and some of which are less so. The push and pull between surveillance and privacy provides a perfect case study. After September 11, stopping terrorists became one of the U.S. government's highest priorities. While obviously an admirable goal, our desperation for security led to a surveillance program that is a hardly in line with the ideals of democracy and freedom upon which our society is based, and b not even necessarily effective. A mature, introspective society needs to reflect on the ramifications, potential uses and abuses of technologies like those employed for mass surveillance, and decide if they are worthwhile before those technologies are put into action. Times of crisis and communal panic, like the wake of the attacks on the World Trade Center, are the exact wrong time for such reflection. Some technologies Walsh considers, like the drastic extension of life via cryonic preservation or the uploading of personalities into mind files, seem so speculative and far off that it almost seems silly to debate their merits. But today's science fiction hopes have a habit of turning into tomorrow's realities and debating something that seems abstract can sometimes shed light on issues that are too hot-buttoned to be debated calmly. Will these mind files have rights? Will only the wealthy be able to achieve this kind of techno-immortality? How will a glut of older minds and perhaps bodies affect the job prospects, creative impulses, and resources of younger generations? Wallach insists that the time to hammer out the extent to which we as a society are willing to accept the risks of a particular technology is precisely when it is so speculative that it seems unreal, because once it is real, it is too late. So, okay, we must sit down and weigh the costs and benefits of a given path and then decide whether that path should ever be taken. But Wallach also wonders whether there are certain paths we should never go down, ever, just on principle no matter how great the potential benefits. If so, who gets to decide what those roads are? This is a particularly confounding question in terms of biological innovations, which trigger people's yuck factor. They can't exactly articulate why something is wrong, they just know viscerally that it is. Although there are those who claim this time of type of primal revulsion is a valuable evolutionary metric and shouldn't be discounted, it is often used to condemn activities that run counter to the religious beliefs of one particular group. To give an example, the yuck argument is the one used to vilify both homosexuality and genetically modified crops. It's not exactly true about the second. As of now, the same genetic engineering that can be used to make a synthetic energy-producing organism can also be used to make a synthetic pathogen. It can cure genetic disorders, but it can also be used to create only blonde, blue-eyed progeny. And this technology is not confined to tightly regulated laboratory settings. DIY biologists can already do some of these things in their garages. No global consensus has been reached about whether this is playing God and should be absolutely verboten, or a great therapeutic stride forward and should be embraced and promoted. That's largely because there's barely been any public debate over it. The military arena is another where Wallach thinks there are lines that should not be crossed. Intelligent snake robot seems like one of those. 
and things that should not be done. But rather than the yuck factor, here he cites the concept that Roman philosophers deemed male and... What? <laughs> Mala on say. That things are evil in themselves. Rape and biological weapons, he says, are both. He thinks the same things about killer robots, not the drones we have now, which are ultimately directed by human beings, but machines that will autonomously decide to take a human life without any input from a human target or agent. He thinks that because machines cannot be held responsible for their actions. Well, this seems like a fairly uncontroversial claim, especially when applied to killer robots. What about self-driving cars? They're machines that will undoubtedly kill someone at some point. For that point, we had better have some ideas as to who precisely can be held accountable when a machine kills a person. Between the time of his book writing and publication, France expanded its domestic surveillance in the wake of the Charlie Hebdo attacks, even as the NSA's mass surveillance program, as revealed by Edward Snowden, was declared illegal. Google was awarded a patent for downloading specific personalities and embalming them in robotic form. The genomes of human embryos were edited, and the idea that robots can take over almost any job previously thought to need a human touch reached the mainstream. We clearly missed our chance to figure out whether or not we want these technologies. Wallach is adamant that we don't also miss the chance to figure out how best to harness them. Mm -hmm. I thought that was really interesting. Yes. Unfortunately, it's also a little after seven, so it's time for Alex. Okay. Let's <laughs> okay. see if I'm around him. Mm -hmm. Okay. Good evening, Alex. How you doing? Good. How are you? All right. Okay. Good evening, and welcome to the CASA update for the week of 10-5-2015. So, has anything interesting happened recently? Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's slow, so it's, uh, it's hard to come up with good stuff to chat about, uh, but... Um, I did, these are not new bills, uh, that I wanted to talk about. Um, there's two bills in, at the federal level. Um, the one we, this might actually be different. Um, but, uh, there was a bill introduced earlier this year, um, that I guess it, it had the same name, the child nicotine poisoning prevention act of 2015. Right. Um, and, uh, the way that was written was simply, uh, I, I believe, oh, what's the name of the commission? Uh, the Consumer um, Product Safety Commission. Yeah, something like that. Um, it was. It would compel them to basically come up with a rule that uh, would require all uh, nicotine-containing liquid to be sold in child-resistant packaging. Uh, this is a little bit more wordy than that and basically just goes straight to um, essentially all e-liquid bottles would, would have to conform to the Poison Prevention Poison Prevention Packaging Act of okay. 1970. Um, so uh, this is a pretty straightforward 
bill, uh, something that we've, you know, supported, uh, you know, it's kind of a no brainer that these products should come in child resistant packaging. And that's kind of the way the industry is going anyway. Um, but I did see a pretty interesting definition of nicotine. Um, and it's on the last page right at the bottom. Uh, and the, the, the term nicotine means any form of the chemical nicotine, including any salt or complex, regardless of whether the chemical is naturally or synthetically derived. And the reason I sort of perk up about this is that, uh, you know, we've, because of the way the Tobacco Control Act was written, mm-hmm. the FDA has been very clear about saying it, it you know, made or derived from tobacco. Right. Um, but I feel like I've seen this definition pop up in state legislatures, perhaps right. at the local level as well. Mm-hmm. So this is just something to, I think everybody should be paying attention to going forward. Um, I have heard people talk about uh, there being actually a cost-effective synthetic nicotine product out there. Mm-hmm. Um and these are coming from reliable people. This is not the kind of the myth, you know, the, the, the mythological, it comes from eggplants. And the fog. <laughs> this right. is actually, you know, real. Somebody managed to, to, to do this and will likely be able to bring it to market in a cost-effective way. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I mean, it's not happening tomorrow or anything, but uh, and I'm sure, you know, whoever actually has the formula is going to be pretty tight-lipped about it because, um, obviously, if they're the only ones doing it, it means a lot of money for them. Right. Um, so anyway, just going forward, uh, I think keeping an eye on how uh, nicotine is treated in, in some of these bills is pretty important. But uh, mm-hmm. for those keeping score, uh, this bill is HB 3242. Um, it's it's just been introduced. Nothing uh, substantial has happened to it. I guess, right. yeah, this one, this went through a markup session is what happened. That okay. all happened, um, I guess, on the 30th, so middle of last week. Okay. Um, the other bill is, appropriately, SB 2100. Okay. Um, this would raise the smoking age, actually, the, the sale of any tobacco product to... 21. Yeah, I, I saw that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and of course it's riddled with all kinds of large, scary numbers and lots of weird facts and so on. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I tend to not bring this up and we've been, CASA has been somewhat, um, quiet on this. I, I think we, we haven't really taken a, a, an official position, mm-hmm. um, but uh, because this does get into the whole, I, I don't know why. It's just, it's a weird, there's some political considerations here, and it's just, it's one of those things. But, you know, I, I got to say, first of all, lumping smoke-free products in with a bill like this is completely uninformed. And uh, moreover, it just, you know, if I'm 18 years old, I can vote, I can die for my country, and I can make all kinds of other bad decisions 
that will potentially mm-hmm. end my life. Right. But you can't drink or smoke. Yeah, why the hell can't I have a cigarette? It just, you know, it kind of blows me away. And, you know, oh, yeah. it, it, it's, I, I, I think they're projecting some large numbers here. Like, you know, I think I kind of understand the, the whole brain development thing. Like once you reach a certain age, you're less impressionable and, uh, you know, you're less likely to develop a, a, a smoking addiction or, you know, a dependency on certain chemicals or whatever. Um, I, I don't know how much truth there is to all of that. It seems rational, but, um, you know, I'm not the science guy, so that's more <laughs> Carl's wheelhouse. And Carl has, in fact, blogged about this, you know, moving moving the age up. It doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, I think one of I think the, the analogy he used was like football or something. Mm-hmm. You know, like um, it's not a good comparison. You know, someone who is twenty one isn't going to start playing football necessarily. I, I, could, <laughs> I can't remember exactly how it worked, but it was it had to deal with cohorts and um, you know, just because you move the goalposts a little bit, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that those people Ooh. aren't going to initiate or, you know, whatever. Right. Um, so. Well, I also think, I think, I think legislation like this breeds disrespect for the law. Do you know yeah. what I mean? So many things have been made illegal or will be made illegal that how can you take it seriously? You know, there will always be someone willing to get an 18-year-old cigarettes or a 13-year-old or a 15-year-old. Lots of times it's their own freaking parents. Um, so, you know, despite what you may think about it, I, I don't think this is something the government should be concerning itself with. The bond market is crashing and the dollar is highly devalued. We have Obamacare exchanges being shuttered all across the country. It seems to me the government has bigger fish to fry than raising the age for tobacco purchases to 21. Maybe I'm just crazy. Well, and, you know, if we're talking about preventing people from picking up a harmful activity like smoking, Mm -hmm. then rather than waving wagging your finger at folks and saying you're not tall enough to ride this ride (laughs) Uh, maybe a more appropriate approach is to offer better alternatives because tobacco historically (laughs) historically meaning longer than the united states Mm -hmm. falls in that category of things that people are going to try and like or try and not like right no matter what no matter what's in front of you i had my first cigarette when i was 13 years old mm-hmm. I, oh, yeah. you know i think that's and, a part of experimenting generally speaking as a part of being a teenager and here's the thing um you know there are many countries all over the world that you know doesn't matter how old you are if you walk in and ask for a glass of wine with dinner, you get a glass of wine with dinner. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know how stupid teenagers are. And they like to think they are more grown up than they are. And when you take something and say, you're not grown up enough to have this, 
they're going to do whatever it is their sneaky little asses have to do to get that <laughs> because they know they are grown up enough to do it. It's it's the forbidden fruit factor. It it absolutely makes things more popular than they should be. And there's actually uh, more than one epidemiologist I've seen say that tobacco control has actually done more to prolong smoking worldwide than it has to curb it because of the forbidden fruit factor. Because people are like, screw you, I'll make my own decisions. Look how well the actual war on drugs has worked out. Look at how many billions we actually spend on it. Look how strong the gangs are in Mexico. Look how much money is made in this market globally. Contrast that with places like Oregon and Colorado, places that have decriminalized one drug or another and taxed it. Oregon just recently did that, and I don't know how that's going, but I know Colorado did it, and they made so much money, everybody got their property taxes back in the state plus a thousand dollars. Okay. People are going to do what they want to do, whether it's legal or illegal. And the more laws you make, the less people have respect for those laws. But I mean, to circle around to what I was saying, you have always said we are victims of the drug war. I believe you're absolutely right. And I say that because I think a lot of these things even smoking is dangerous to a certain small degree to people who are bystanders. But e even that degree is so ridiculously small, it can't really be quantified. It's like 1 or 0.1 or, or less than 1, something that epidemiologists used to consider null. Okay. And they did notice that people who smoked did get more rates of cancer or this or that, but that could also be you know, confounded with lifestyle choices, etc. And that isn't all factored in. But by lying by omission about how something is extremely dangerous, you you see you tend to glamorize it and make it something that people want to attain because they want to be cool. Instead of it just being a thing that people choose to do or to not do. I don't think that's really um, the best way to conduct business. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what I was really thinking, but um, I, I don't know what they're thinking. They've got so many more pressing problems. Well, Don't and this, something like this, I'm sure, seems like a, a slam dunk. I, by the way, the entire list of, of sponsors on this bill are, are all Democrat. Um, so it's, I mean, that's just, that's their That's uh, how they agenda. roll. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to say a lot of glowing words for either party, but um, <clears throat> yeah, in, in general, it's it's less about... I think allowing people to, to make decisions and, and more about telling them how to behave, um, which, you know, <laughs> the, the, the drug war is an excellent example of how well that works. So, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think the sooner people wake up to the fact that this, I think the sooner people wake up to the fact that this is 
another casualty of the drug war? Vaping? That we will be another casualty of the drug war unless we stand up and speak out against it? Like the people at Normal did for uh, medical cannabis use? Uh, they will bury us unless we do something. Unless we speak up. Unless we care. And maybe that's a side effect of there being so many laws, but I don't know. I'd rather not make it harder for the person behind me. If sending a letter to my senator or congressman or going to see my congress critter, who's uh, not my favorite human being, um, and speaking out against it can change it, I would want to do that first. You know what I mean? I mean, and people can contact their Democratic or Republican Congress critters, senators, to talk about their displeasure on this sort of issue. You know, I think there's actually a remarkable amount of content in the letter that we're asking people to send in support of H.R. 2058. Um, So, uh, you know, and that's... You know, I, I I hope that when you know we write these letters, that the folks that are sending them are actually taking the time to read them themselves before they send this along, and you know digest some of the messages that we're sending, and and arm yourself. Uh, you know, one of the things that I did, um, I I can't remember exactly which action it was, but you know I sent uh, one of the pre-written letters to uh, one of to my congressman here in new jersey and uh i got you know a kind of a kind of a canned response back uh i've I've watched all it's it's actually kind of interesting in the very beginning the canned responses were more of like i got your message i care and check out my (laughs) website and now they've gone into the stock i've received your message and i care very much about what my constituents say and then it kind of gives this like standard breakdown of what you know, the FDA deeming regulations are and what, a, what an electronic, even they go into what an electronic cigarette is a battery powered device that vaporizes <laughs> liquid nicotine and blah, blah, blah. Um, right. So they've evolved and it's, it's, it's now becoming a part of the, the consciousness of lawmakers. And um, so it, it's actually, I've said this, I think a couple of times before, but when you get that canned response back, it's a good opportunity to respond again and say, you know, uh, it just it didn't seem like you got the whole picture on this. I wanted to fill you in on some of the details. And, you know, you always take that opportunity to dispute some of the things. You know, bills typically have a preamble, or in this case, you know, I'm looking at SB 2100, it's under Section 2, findings. Um, so, you know, even some of these numbers here that, you know, tobacco use has caused 20,800,000 premature deaths in the United States. I'm pretty sure that we could debate that number, and specifically, we could debate those deaths being attributed directly to tobacco. Yep. Um, so that that number in of itself is is very inflated and wholly inaccurate, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, now that you know, with the recent Surgeon General's report, there are you know, there's a, uh, I don't know if it's a long list, but you know, there's there's a new list of, of diseases <laughs> that are caused by smoking, essentially, and allegedly. Allegedly, um, and, and so now that you know, as we have watched the the 
the death toll from smoking kind of go down a little bit, it creeps back up a little bit more because now these all these other diseases are associated with smoking, um, which, you know, it's just, it, that's more like, you know, panic, fire in the, the, the theater kind of stuff. So but it's, yeah, it's kind of like the boy crying wolf. There was a really interesting article, and I don't know if I ever talked about this, um, about five years ago. This woman who's a nurse, and she was studying to become an epidemiologist, um, she worked in a flu ward. And she count, She was trying to get a count on the number of deaths that there actually were. And she went through and she found out how the Canadian government totaled up the amounts for deaths from the flu. Basically, if you had had any sort of upper respiratory infection the season that the flu went around and had gone to see a doctor for it, you were counted in the statistics as a flu death because of how SAMIC, which is also the computer program that decides, you know, how many people die from smoking, decided that's what it was going to include. When they found the actual deaths were something like less than 200 for all of Canada. And they had massively inflated numbers because of the computer and the parameters that the health department had decided to put into the system. So they use numbers and big sounding words to scare all of us. They've, they've done that for a really long time. Um, there's good epidemiology. The stuff I see Carl and, and Brad Rodu and, and Clive Bates and, and so many of the others do. And then there's this like voodoo stuff that I see Stanton Glantz and other people engaging in. And it's really hard to educate people on the fact that the numbers that they have in their hands might not be the truth. You know, I, I don't know how you educate people about that. It's, it's difficult. And, you know, once you start putting enough zeros behind certain numbers, it, it's all just sort of mush. To, and that's like a human problem. There's no, that, that's just, you know, these are huge problems that I think very few people in the world can actually wrap their heads around. So um, trying to disseminate that information without losing some of the significance or, or some very, very important details, I think is very difficult. Um, so I, I, I have some empathy there with some of the science science folks struggling with that um just because i'm the one on the other end trying to understand this stuff and it's just it's difficult for me so i can't imagine how difficult (laughs) it is for them well i i think it's got to be harder for them trying to tease out the good science from the like clump of weeds basically of lies surrounding the actual good scientific fact that's really hard to do and there's so very few people who can actually do it, you know, with a detached framework. Um, and, and I think that makes those people extremely rare. And it, it really is sad that those kind of people aren't the kind of people who should could get funding from the government to study how these things work. Because they really should be the ones studying it, not the people they're giving grants to. Okay, I'm sorry. I totally went off course. That's okay. <laughs> <I'm> sorry. <laughs> I showed up with not a lot to talk about, yet here we are 20 minutes later. Hey. <clears throat> That's it's fine. impressive. Yeah. 
We love um, you, Bleak. <laughs> <laughs> we do, actually. Wait till she gets this one. Um, um, I, 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 I do want to mention to completely change gears. Actually, not, not entirely. Um, okay. We were talking about... Um, Oh, now I forget what we were talking about that made me think of this, but I was going to bring it up anyway. And I had a really nice segue, and I totally blew it. Um, <clears throat> but speaking of, I guess well, you, I guess you mentioned Stan Glantz. Um, there is on our blog, <clears throat> uh, we, we tweeted it out, I think, shortly after we, we posted it, but Kassaw submitted a second comment to the... Um, the advanced notice of proposed rulemaking warnings and child resistant packaging for liquid nicotine, nicotine containing e-liquids and other tobacco products. I'm not going to read the docket number. I've already gone too far with the title. Um, (laughs) But uh, this is a comprehensive takedown. Would that be appropriate? I think it's a a (laughs) reschooling of Stanton Glantz's, so yeah, so T cores uh, slash something. I think we might have it in here. Yes, uh, the University of California, San Francisco Tobacco Center of Regulatory Science T cores, mm-hmm. and the California Poison Control System CPCS um, submitted a comment, a long rambling comment, uh, in response to the FDA's call for comments, uh, and. They kind of went totally extreme, exactly what you would think they would say, which is that all of these dire warnings should be on (laughs) bottles of e-liquid. And I'm not going to sit here and and try to summarize this, uh, but suffice to say it is worth reading if if you have not read it already. I actually, I had to find the link because our, our website is, I don't want to bring this up ever again, but our website is, is a little difficult to navigate. So um, I've tried to make this accessible. If you search through the FDA stuff that we have posted up, you can find it. Um, but probably an easier way to do it is just look at our tweets um, mm-hmm. for the past week, uh, which are not, <laughs> not that many. Um, we don't tweet a lot. Uh, so that's two things about Casa. We're not going to fill up your Twitter news feed with a bunch of stuff, and we don't send spam. So uh, <laughs> we're pretty good neighbors. Um, yeah. But it is hard to find things when you need to access some of the, the interesting stuff that we do. Uh, total side note there. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, check it out. Uh, our, our One of our advisors, Brian Carter and mm-hmm. Carl Phillips, uh, worked pretty hard on this and I think knocked it out of the park uh, in, in – in uh, offering UCSF some some re-education, maybe, uh, and hopefully this provides a good good counterweight and some and some very very much needed perspective uh, to the FDA. Yeah. Um, so that comment and our comment are both up on our blog, uh, and I recommend everybody take a look at that because uh, you know this 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 course takes us down into, you know, what's this butts right up against, you know, acceptable marketing type stuff, um, which is going to be a a pretty critical conversation going forward. Yeah. I mean, there's the, I don't know if you had 
seen or not, but um, I know I had seen, I'm pretty sure you had seen, where they're starting to study the vape conventions now. And oh, yeah. they've, they've been <laughs> studying our Twitter feeds and our Facebook groups. And they started talking about doing that about a, two years ago. And that's when the the group that I inherited from my friend who passed away, I took and made the group private. There's like 20 people who might see the posts in there, but I'll be damned if they're going to include anything I put in there. I honestly, I think, us. I, I, I think they should study it. I, I would like to see uh, the craft that they turn out and, and give some knowledgeable people an opportunity to um, do what, what Brian and Carl did to UCSF's comment. Uh, we it, should it, start inviting them to everyone. I really do. I think every convention out there should start inviting these people. Here, would you Are like to? you crazy? I'm not crazy. I think. Oh, no. I, do you really yeah. want Glance? <clears throat> really? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. Definitely. Glance coming in with his, like, his, his, his freaking space suit with the independent airline going in. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'd like to see that. <laughs> yeah, because you could stand I, on the airline. <laughs> I, I, th- I think it would also cause people to uh, to think a little harder about what we're up against. Um, I, I had actually, I, I was in at a show in Texas, and one of the guys that was, uh, he was an employee of the convention center, and he was wearing a dust mask. <clears throat> and I asked him, I said, do they, do they make you wear that? Or is that your decision? And he said, it's the smell uh, doesn't, I don't, it makes me feel queasy. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. You know, I mean, he's not walking around doing the kind of like, <laughs> I'm, I'm fake coughing because I think it's smoke. He was genuinely uncomfortable around all of that vapor. And so, you know, but he's, you know, he's just sort of a, a independent person. Now to throw, uh, uh, to, to, to throw a scientist into that mix who's walking around maybe with a suit and tie and a dust mask on taking notes i, I think people might perk up a bit and say wow like yeah they're, they're paying attention to us we're, we're being yeah. we're under the microscope here it's, it's time to reevaluate a few things well there's already been four or five studies about how we act on social media and, yeah, I mean, and, and, and they're they're using that and submitting it to the fda <laughs> by the way um, and like you said, talking about marketing, because, you know, a lot of our vendors talk to us on social media. Yeah. Yeah. Some and of it's... I would love for them to walk up to the door, Jan, and find out that they have to have a photo ID that proves they're over 18 years old to get in the door. Yeah. Yeah. They yeah. should, they should I... see how these, these events are, are actually being run responsibly. Yeah, and I understand the the whole smell thing, and I say that because when my husband took me to VaporCon one, he couldn't be in the event room. Um, you the know, smell, this the all of the flavoring, the smells were there's it's what? it's it's a lot. I mean, it's a lot because people are able to vape, and there's hundreds, sometimes thousands of people gathered in a, a space that might have seemed quite spacious at the time, but then as more people go to meet and see people like them, there's less and less room. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. It, it, it is, it, it, it is overwhelming. It can be overwhelming for people who vape. Yeah. 
I mean, I, I, I remember I, I was like, I have to go outside. Now, I, I vape. I'm around smokers all the time too. I don't, I could care less. It doesn't bother me. Right. But I, I had to go outside the, the last two vape events I went to it was very, very foggy. But, um, yeah. you know. I'm, 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 I'm headed down to, uh, VaporCon this weekend. Actually, there's going to be Yep. Um, so yeah, myself and Ron Ward and Elaine Keller, and I believe Brian Carter is coming out. Uh, so we'll have, uh, a good group of us down there. Um, but last year, uh, I, you were there last year, weren't you, Jeannie? Yes, but I overslept again and missed the meeting. <laughs> wow. You overslept pretty hard then. <laughs> Oh, the, the meeting, the, the member meeting. Yeah. Uh, I thought you said you missed the entire event. Sorry. No, no. Um, <laughs> that would be weird. Stay up to 50 hours in the morning talking to Kazi and Ron Ward. Um, it probably wouldn't happen. Yeah. But, I mean, last year it was, uh, it, that's, a, that's the smallest space out of any of these events that I've, I've gone to. And it got to a point last year where you couldn't see across the room. And for me, my experience wasn't so much, you know, I didn't have, I, I typically don't have a problem with the smell and there's no like breathing issues that come up or, you know, my eyes don't start to burn or anything weird like that. But just, I think visually looking, existing in that fog for hours, it kind of does something to my mood. And I just, I want to see things in a little bit higher definition at some point. So it, it does, it gets a little weird. Um, maybe somebody should study that. I don't know. I think it just feels surreal after a while. It, it's yeah. like, um, not that I would know, I've never been to one, but it kind of reminds me of um, some of the heavy metal stage shows they had in the early 80s with a ton of, you know, fake fog. Yeah. I find I find if you're actually close to fog machines at those events that can be kind of irritating. So I think it's just like that. I don't think it's anything else. I think it's just kind of the concentration. Yeah. can be kind of irritating. So, yeah. I, I don't know. I still don't want glance at any vape event. I'm, I'm so sorry I, to say. <laughs> I, I, I think they should. I think they need to cowboy up and come down and talk to real people and, and see what goes on. I, 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 I can't tell you how impressed I was to see uh, some, I, I believe it, this is in New Jersey and it was from like two towns over or something. Uh, the, the mayor and a city councilor and the chief of police and like the city lawyer all showed up at uh, a vapor shop and were asking questions of, you know, to the guy behind the counter who actually was informed and knew quite a bit. And uh, it was just one of those situations where I, showed up and was able to kind of stand back and watch it happen because you know, there was a good dialogue going on and right. everybody left. There were handshakes and smiles and, um, you know, that, that impresses me doing research at arm's length, you know, I mean, unless you're studying nuclear material, it's, it's just not that I, I don't see how that is actually beneficial. There's no, there's no context there. You're just taking, statements off of social media or in the case of the, the the person that did the research on conventions 
she was just looking at, I, I think Carl actually explained it, she's just looking at splash pages for conventions. I, I mean, what are you going to learn from that? that but it, it's not them. It's not about them learning anything. It's about them finding a way to keep their funding. I think, um, and I agree. If if you want actual scientific research, then the scientists should come down and interact with the vapors. Well, maybe not even interact. Even like stand back and take measurements <laughs> and observe. But now I, I don't mean interact like that. But I mean how how well is Mister Glance? I can't call him professor or anything, but how well is Mr. Glantz going to be received by the vaping community if he comes to a vape event? Do you know what I mean? Well, I guarantee you probably 75% of them, and I did just pull that number out of thin air, 75% of them don't know who he is. (laughs) So that's a scary statistic there. (laughs) I I mean, you know, off the cuff epidemiology there. (laughs) Uh, yeah exactly that's not based on anything it's just a i mean but if i want to run the numbers i mean let's think about it you know we got seventy thousand casa members um out of three million dedicated users in in the united states Mm -hmm. so what's the percentage on that (laughs) let's just assume that everybody that hasn't heard of casa doesn't really know what kind of challenges we're facing and they aren't you know signed up to get our emails Right. Um, I, I, I would say that, yes, there are probably millions of people that absolutely adore these products and can attribute some sort of life-saving event to them um, and that just don't quite grasp the, the forces against us. Yeah. And I, I hate to refer to Stanton Glance as a force. No, but... he's not really. He's <laughs> kind of like a, I don't know. Stay puff marshmallow man. I don't um I didn't really just say that. <laughs> um yeah. He I, I don't think I think he's serious about what he's doing. I think he's not happy about where the funds for his chosen career be drying up. Um and I think he's at the age where it's not a good time to look for a new career. So I think he's highly motivated. I don't think that makes him a serious force. I just think that makes him dangerous. I think that makes a lot of them very dangerous. And I think we underestimate them. Yeah. Well, the, the, the other side of this coin is I, 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 I liken it to, uh, you know, what's the word? You know how when I, I you know you watch those courtroom shows and and the the lawyer says something that he knows is going to get an objection, but right. he says it anyway because it sticks in the mind of the jury. Yeah, you know, like you can strike it from the official record. You the judge can instruct those jurors to not consider that part of the testimony. But you know what? It was it's out there. It was said. So right. I, I kind of think that a lot of tobacco controls tactics involve saying things that they in fact know that are not they can't really back it up with any good science but it's out there in the information stream and you know really i i'm sure that there is some study that needs to be done on this um but you know those lies end up in state and federal code 
just yeah. like we were talking about earlier. And that's mm -hmm. that's the really uh, dangerous stuff there when, when the lie becomes fact by well. repetition. Yeah, but I mean, that's... <clears throat> You want to go back to Goebbels and, and Hitler and, and all that. They were masters of propaganda and they knew that that worked. You repeat a lie often enough, it sticks in the mind of people and becomes truth. Yeah. And a lot, and you're right, a lot of the laws, a lot of the things occurring in legislation are happening because our opponents feel like it's okay to tell a bold-faced lie to achieve their ends we don't i think most of us don't feel that way they're actually tobacco control is very good with one thing they're they've studied language they use it much more effectively than we do which is a shame um because they've studied positive and negative verbiage um clean air legislation they're they're always saying things like that because it creates a positive image in people's minds and i think we could actually learn a lot by turning it around and not letting them study us but i think we should be studying them because unfortunately they're effective and unfortunately they win yeah so i i like i i i think i i briefly touched on that and I'm, I'm not sure i know that in some some side conversations um I, I don't know how far this is has come along but um i, I think a good example of that would be taking a, a, a very detailed look at uh at state and local legislation and, and uh seeing just how much of this garbage ends up in the preambles to these bills and 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 I don't know. I think that's a very time-consuming and possibly very expensive type of thing to do. Um, you're not likely to get an NIH grant for that. Right. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that's definitely something that... Uh, well, that might be... You know what? That might just be an interesting thing to just collect. All yeah. the legislation you can find and look and find the commonalities and then cross-reference the searches uh, any good librarian could help somebody who was motivated do it and track down where they came from because that would be an interesting tree to make you know this is where this came from this is where this came from this is where this came from i think it would be very interesting to look at it i mean i don't think i have the time to do it but um i do think it's an interesting idea it's a really good idea alex actually I can't claim credit for it, so. Um, uh, but uh, for all of those wondering what you can do uh, if you're not doing anything this weekend, uh, <laughs> you can come through state laws and yeah. uh, pick out the tobacco lies. Which always sounds like fun, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Everybody loves spreadsheets. No, 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 no. That's <laughs> Why do you think I said tree? Make a dialogue tree. Trees are much easier. Less, less format. Everybody Much loves trees. Format. I love trees. Okay. <laughs> I guess we've run the gamut on this, huh? <laughs> yeah. It's a good thing uh, Julie isn't coming to Richmond because uh, she might murder uh, uh, at least me. So, yeah. um, well, should... <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. I just like it on public record that it was not my fault, Julie. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> no, that was me this time. I'm sorry. And I didn't swear. No, she didn't. It was just last week. 
Last week was bad. I'm still sorry for that. That's just, it's perfectly <laughs> fine. Don't worry about it. It's frustrating for all of us. Okay. So I guess that's it for this week. Thank you, Alex, for everything you do. And thanks for a really interesting conversation. Um, Likewise. Thanks. And we will see you again next week. Yep. Good night. Good night. Sometimes I think the entire show goes off the rails, no matter what I play. <laughs> but you know what? I really hope that people listen to that entire cassette update because there was a lot of stuff in there that people should really think about that weren't necessarily calls to action. Yeah. No, I mean, and they weren't. And in a way, I kind of feel bad because there are like little legislative things, but there's also some like really big stuff. There's things are happening. Things are happening, put it that way. Okay. Um, so I said we would talk about the state troopers' cars. So I'll do that. And then I don't know what else I promised I would do um, when I put my show notes up. Um, let me find it. Um, so, yeah. Uh, hacking police cars, France and the NSA... Stockton's mayor. Oh, yeah. So there's two more things I absolutely have to do. And one is about the state troopers' vehicles. I'll read that. And then the other one's pretty interesting. Uh, State trooper vehicles hacked. Car hacking research initiative in Virginia shows that even older vehicles could be targeted in cyber attacks. A state trooper responding to a call starts his vehicle but is unable to shift the gear from park to drive. The engine's RPM suddenly spike and the engine accelerates, no foot on the pedal. Then the engine cuts off on its own. The unmarked 2012 Chevrolet Impala from the Virginia State Police Fleet has been hacked, luckily by good hackers. This is what police officers could someday face in an age of car hacking. It's just one in a series of cyber attacks waged on the VSPs, Impalas, and others and on one other 2013 Ford Taurus marked patrolled car as part of an experiment by a private, a public-private partnership to test how many state trooper vehicles could be sabotaged via cyber attacks. Virginia Governor Terry McAuliffe in May first announced the initiative, which was aimed at protecting the state's public safety agencies and citizens from vehicle hacking. Among the organizations that worked on the project were the Virginia State Police, the State of Virginia, Materi Corp, Mission Secure Incorporated, Caprica Security, Spectrum, Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab, Digital Bond Labs, the Aerospace Corporation, and the Virginia Department of Motor Vehicles. The research was conducted in coordination with the U.S. Department of Homeland Security Science and Technology Division and the U.S. Department of Transportation's Volpe Transportation System Center. Car hacking has shifted into overdrive this year, mainly thanks to research by famed car hackers Charlie Miller and Chris Valsic, who this summer demonstrated how they were able to remotely control the 2014 Jeep Cherokee steering, braking, high beams, turn signals, windshield wipers, and fluid, and lock doors, as well as reset all the speedometers and tachometers, kill the engine, and disengage the transmission so the accelerator pedal failed. 
There were no state troopers driving into ditches or rolling onto highway exit ramps after losing control of the gas pedal. Unlike Miller and Vasek's video demonstration of those hacks with the journalists behind the wheel, the VSP's research didn't hack moving vehicles. But the Virginia Project demonstrated how even non-networked, older model vehicles are also susceptible to cyber attacks. The hacks of the VSP cruisers require initial physical tampering of the vehicle as well. The researchers inserted rogue drives into the two police vehicles to basically reprogram some of the car's electronic operations or to wage the attacks via mobile devices, which they demonstrated. The project evolved out of concerns by security experts as well as police officials of the dangers of criminal or terror groups tampering with state police vehicles to sabotage investigations or assist in criminal acts. And unlike most car hacking research to date, it includes the creation of prototype solutions for blocking cyber attacks as well as data gathering for forensic purposes. Perhaps a bigger surprise than the car hacks themselves was that a police department would agree to participate in a potentially sensitive cyber attack research. But Captain Jerry L. Davis of the Virginia State Police's Bureau of Criminal Investigation said there was no hesitation by law enforcement officials in the state when the project was first proposed. Our executive staff was aware of the issue in the arena and some of the cascading effects that could occur if we didn't start to take a proactive approach. I mean, this goes on and on and on and on. It's actually pretty interesting. Um, okay. VSP's Davis, this is toward the end of the article, says the new age of car hacking means law enforcement will be faced with condescending, or considering the cybersecurity of its fleet. We understand with vehicles that not being connected to the internet is a good thing. Taking a look at the systems and components embedded in there and how they communicate together is this something I need to consider in my purchase? He says VSPs already has in place technicians to investigate computer fraud, so forensic analysis out of a potential car hack would be another aspect of their duties. Police cars are less equipped with electronics and police communicate through private networks, so they are not as vulnerable as a consumer. But the cruisers have many of the same features as consumer cars have and are potentially hackable, UVA's Horowitz says. The next question is, what do you do about it? What kind of data can be extracted from a car and is seen at the accident? These attacks, demonstrated, are based on putting devices on the car. You could have an inspection procedure when you get into a car, and at an incident, the police would check a consumer's car for data devices, he said. If the cars have built-in forensics gathering capabilities, that data could be analyzed to confirm whether a traffic accident was due to a cyber attack, he notes. There are crashes every day, and it's impossible to tell if a cyber attack was the cause, says Frank Burnham, chief scientist for the defense contractor Spectrum. Someday, someone will claim responsibility for something. Then what did the automakers do? This is an engineering problem. I don't know that I necessarily think it's an engineering problem, but I do think it's pretty interesting. Yeah, because um, I find it interesting they, they had to... It was older vehicles, so they added. Yeah, exactly. The older vehicle is but, the more, the more secure but, it kind of is in a way. Ah, but there's the but. But you can remotely control electronics without directly accessing them, as yeah. we have discussed previously. Mm-hmm. So really, really high tech hackers could probably do it using just pointing a dish at the car. <laughs> 
Well, I mean, on modern cars, yeah, the, the more modern cars with the much more electronics really need to be what the military term hardened. Right. Well, I mean, most modern technology is extremely vulnerable. Yeah. I mean, it's almost scary. Like, I can't even. I can't even imagine that they've demonstrated they can hack an air-gapped laptop. That's yeah. air-gapped. It's never been connected to the internet. But a really smart hacker can hack into that. Mm -hmm. So even having a device, never connecting it to anything, doesn't mean that it's safe and secure. So it's just cyber technology, scary, scary stuff. Interesting. Yeah, if, you, if you remember the film Enemy of the State, the, I do. the crazy spies... <laughs> guy living in the Faraday cage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know what? These things used to seem impossible. These things were relegated to the realm of Alex Jones conspiracy theorists. And now you can't really be sure. So, it just makes it really interesting to have conversations when you have all of these really technical people involved in this stuff. Yeah, I mean, geez, and people thought problems with cars involved uh, Volkswagens knowing that they're being tested and changing their <laughs> oh, <laughs> configuration. Oh, 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 Samsung. They're yeah. saying Samsung changed their testing protocols. Yes. Yeah, a couple of, of I, what do you want to call these people? Cyber detectives? Yeah. They they went through the programming and said that, you know, how all of these TVs have these really great readings for, you know, being green for the environment and only using so yeah. much power and how much lower they're going to make your electric bill. They're saying Samsung TVs had all these really great ratings, but they're really not. Yeah. That they're really, really terrible. You know, as well as horribly invasive. Wait, wait, wait. Who was it Volkswagen? Yes. Is in so much shit. Yeah. Yeah. See that? I oh, mean, yeah. their their clean diesel isn't really so clean. It was just that the motherfuckers were smart enough to write out a program to lie to the computers testing them. Yeah, but I mean, it, but that rabbit hole goes deeper than you want to go down because everybody knew. Everybody involved in the EU government knew yeah. because they kept telling people, no, you can't change the testing protocols. These are just fine. And lobbying for them to keep the testing protocols the same because had they ever changed that, you would have seen exactly how dirty these cars were. Not the just these cars, the a lot of other cars. The absolutely best bit of the whole Volkswagen story, though, is the board member who decided to do all the public speaking about it. And his name was Olaf Lies. Okay, Lise is technically how he probably says his surname. But yeah, it came up comes up in the news report, Olaf Lies. What? And subtle. We're completely off the rails. Um, Paul was flipping through channels the other day, right? And, and he stops and he's like, what the hell is that? And I have to tell you, do you know that QVC has an electric chainsaw. And the funny thing about this is I'm looking at Paul and I'm like, are you absolutely kidding me? And he's like, 
what a piece of shit is that? He says, he's going to buy that, right? And I'm like, but it gets even better. I said, this guy is talking about how, you know, that the fumes and the fossil fuels and everything used in the production to make the gasoline and the oil that's going to this other chainsaw. I'm like, have these fucking people seriously never seen what a strip mine looks like? Have they, do they, they not? They probably never have. The lie that they are perpetuating when they say that all of these battery-operated things are cleaner? Well, I mean, if you really want to talk about clean, what's really disgusting is where they mine the rare earth minerals that power our computers and our Xboxes and our TVs and our computers um, and our cars even. That is fucking disgusting. Yeah, that these batteries are made. I mean, let's, you know, the mining for the materials is bad enough. And then you have the process that it goes through to make these batteries. And then let's talk about the recycling these batteries because they only accept so many charges. This is not fucking clean energy, folks. No. At least, like, the batteries that you use to store your power for a solar bank. Mm Mm-hmm. You you are using those much longer than you would use that battery under any other condition. Right. Okay? Mm-hmm. Um, the, the lifespan on the battery is exponentially more. Um, right. But when you're talking about battery-operated cars, you know, the batteries that we're using in our e-cigs and stuff, the condi- I, I, oh, I just cannot believe that people just buy new People well, don't. No, though. And people, but Jeannie, people don't want to know. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I've come to kind of accept that fact about people. You look on, look on Facebook. How many really serious stories do you see? I see a lot, but that's because I post a lot. (laughs) But, you know, most of what I see are cat cartoons and funny little memes. We get it. You vape, you know? fog rolling over San Francisco. We get it. You vape. I I see a lot of that. But I I don't see a lot of people digesting the really serious stuff. And in a way, I don't blame them because I don't think knowing this stuff makes you any happier. But knowledge is power. The smarter you are, the better armed you are to go through life. And your mind is your greatest weapon. So... It's best to keep it sharp. And I think you're absolutely right. I mean, people should actually... And you must have seen the films of these mines in China where they mine the rare earth minerals, right, Jeannie? Yep. We probably need to post some videos so people can see that stuff. What you think you know isn't always the truth. Well, China, China's not so bad. Most of the big mines are in Africa and Australia. Well, we used to have some here. Mm-hmm. Now we don't touch rare earth minerals. And it's kind of ironic to me that we shuttered all those jobs to China. You know, um, to quote probably my least favorite politician, that slow sucking sound you hear is the sound of jobs moving out of the United States. Ross Perot. When he talked about the first big trade agreement that we ever heard about. You know, well, you, you we should were... be happy that at least Glencore is is not having a nice time at the moment. <laughs> I am happy about that. Yeah. If people don't know who Glencore is, it's basically the largest mining company in the world. 
if you have a product, one of their mines probably dug up the materials for it. Chances are pretty great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and yeah, they are possibly the worst uh, corporate <laughs> uh, entity in the world. Yeah. Makes well. all others look pleasant and nice. Oh, I don't know. I don't think anything makes Evil Corp look pleasant or nice. But Glencore makes everybody else look better. <laughs> I mean, this is a company that's, that has started wars. <laughs> you know, at least our corporations just kind of hide behind the government's skirt. Yeah. Protect our profits. Um... And the very last story I was going to do, because I was kind of happy about this, not that it means anything. FBI and DEA under review for use of NSA mass surveillance data. The Justice Department, well, you know you're going to get a fair and balanced investigation there. Just like when you only watch Fox News, you'll get a fair and balanced view of one insane side of the argument. The Justice Department is investigating the FBI's use of information taken directly from mass surveillance conducted by the National Security Agency's collection of telephone metadata. The yield of that NSA spying program was described to a judge as a, quote, staggering amount of data when the agency's ability to collect it was struck down as illegal in court earlier this year. The program was resumed in June and will run until at least December they would never do anything illegal. Another ongoing Justice Department investigation is examining the Drug Enforcement Agency's use of parallel construction. The investigation surfaced in a report to Congress from the Justice Department's Inspector General. Parallel construction is a controversial investigative technique that takes information gained from sources like the NSA's mass surveillance, covers up or lies about the sources, and then utilizes them in criminal investigations inside the United States. The information was passed to other federal agencies like the IRS. The technique was described as a decades-old bedrock concept by a DEA official. Critics at the Electronic Frontier Foundation described the technique as intelligence laundering designed to cover up deception and dishonesty that ran contrary to the original intent of the post-911 surveillance laws. Both the FBI and DEA, which operate under the jurisdiction of the Justice Department, are under review by the Department's Officer of Office of Inspector General. The details of the NSA's mass metadata collection program were first publicly revealed in 2013 by contractor Edward Snowden. The DEA's use of parallel construction was revealed by Reuters a few months later. The OIG is charged with identifying and investigating fraud, waste, abuse, and mismanagement. Although OIG reports cannot on their own force change, detailed information is always shared with Congress and often the public, which can lead to the investigative party agreeing to the suggested changes and conclusions from the OIG or other entities. The NSA sent daily metadata reports to the FBI from at least 2006 to 2011, according to the Director of National Intelligence. The ongoing review will examine how the FBI processed the NSA's information, how much information was passed along, and the results of initiated investigations. The NSA's mass collection of telephone metadata was thought to be authorized under Section 215 of the Patriot Act. 
Both George W. Bush and Barack Obama administrations argued for and got renewed authorization until the program expired in Congress earlier this year. The Justice Department's Officer of Inspector General is also investigating the FBI's use of Patriot Act Section 215 from 2012 I'm sorry, to 2014 that allowed it to obtain any tangible thing, quote-unquote, from any business or entity as part of its investigations against international terrorism or spying. A previous investigation revealed that every single Section 215 application submitted by the FBI to the Secretive Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court was approved. That amount of data collected was staggering, was a staggering amount of information, Judge Gerald E. Lynch wrote in his decision, such expansive development of a government repository of formerly private records would be an unprecedented contradiction of the privacy expectations of all Americans. Which is not a shock to us, I think. No, what... (laughs) What always comes to mind when you get a story like this is, I, for some reason, I have this image of my head of right the OIG are are like an owner and and dealing with a puppy that's peed on the floor, <laughs> <laughs> and it's just gonna be oh you're a bad boy oh you've been naughty no oh, don't do that again that's kind of what it turns out like. Well, you know, it it does. I mean, let's be honest. What was it? Last week I was just reading about, okay, the DA knocked over a bunch of medical marijuana clinics. That's Uh fine, however you think about it. And and some of the agents really seem to enjoy themselves. Oh, boy, did they. Mm -hmm. But the thing that kills me is a lot of the agents who were involved in taking down these legal, fully legal, um dispensaries were also themselves involved in illegal drug use but they tested positive for these substances in their systems and nothing fucking happened to them Mm -hmm. so yeah the government investigating the government you're never going to get anything good out of it nothing good's going to happen the only good thing that happened is that we can learn more about it and talk more openly about it yeah but the the more people who talk about it the better yeah, that's the image I have, though. Naughty puppy. Oh, yeah. You've been a Jeannie. bad boy. Yeah. Janie, any thoughts? It's never going to happen. They lie for each other. I mean... Yeah. You know. I think a lot of times it feels like us against them. Because it is us against them. They should, you know, they should let my my kids conduct these investigations. My children children can't lie to save their fucking ass. They really can't. Um, The fact that we managed to get my husband's birthday party all done and him be absolutely shocked and surprised is amazing. And I think it's because I didn't let my children be alone with him long enough to get busted in. in, in Um, You know, I said to my son, you need to lie to your dad for me. And he went, uh, no. I can't do that. <laughs> you know, no. And and my husband did. He looked right at my son and he said, by the way, you lied to me. <laughs> well, you know what? If you've got kids that can't lie, you did something right. No, I'm not saying they can't lie. They they lie. <laughs> <laughs> they just can't do it well at all. It's, it's very <laughs> obvious um, that they're lying. 
feet yeah, shuffling. Yeah, well, somehow looking, I'm sure government agents don't have yeah. those freaking tells. I think they study with really great poker players to learn how to have a blank face. Oh, forget forget poker players. No, no. Restaurant staff. <laughs> That's who you study. <laughs> they, they are the world's best at giving no reaction when they know you're full of shit. Oh. Um... <laughs> I know, I did that for a long time. My, uh, my, the uh, best one was me being asked, how's the chicken? And I'd go, the chicken is delightful this evening. <laughs> I'm allergic to chicken. I hadn't <laughs> been near the chicken. It's delightful. I, you know, and, okay, I work, I work in a grocery store, I think we've established that. So, a lot of times I'll be the only one working on the sales floor. So I'll get called everywhere from frozen all the way over to wine. And we happen to serve an upscale clientele just because of our location. Doesn't mean I'm upscale. I'm one of the peons who work there. And a lot of these like old, older, richer, whiter. Oh my God. I thought it was white women. Um, ask these questions. Well, is this a good wine? You want to pay $3.50 for a bottle of wine you drove up here in a Cadillac. It's great. Everybody at your dinner party will be impressed. <laughs> and you're asking the if the $3.50 bottle of wine is a good wine. Um, sure it is. Whatever you think. <laughs> you know, it, it's just funny. They, they do want a lot of people just want to be told what to do. And to me, that's shocking. I see that every day at work. That scares the hell out of me. Because we should have independent thought. And a lot of people don't. Because they find it easier to be led along and told what to do. I don't want to live like that. And I think the people who listen to the show don't want to live like that. And for the people that don't want to live that way, I'm proud of you. And for the other people, oh God, this is not going to do anyone any good. So, yeah. Did you ever get that feeling, Barry, when they asked you questions like that? That they just wanted to be told what to eat? Kind of? Yeah, but the people who were like that usually had an interesting experience in my restaurant. <laughs> I have this problem, you know, if somebody's that suggestible, yeah, things are going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> Mischievous, I think it's technically called. Uh -huh. Okay, we'll call it that. Yeah. <laughs> well, for instance, you're talking about the, the wine thing. We used, yeah. we used to have a... You, you know what a cava is, yeah? Yeah, I know what cava is. Yeah. Basically, it's a, it's not even real wine. Um, but <laughs> we used to sell this in our hotel. And I'll, I, I shall exchange to American prices. So we were selling it for about $14 a bottle. We were buying it for one dollar fifty. <laughs> Some people would go, "Is yum, is this yum. is this is this nice? Is this a nice sparkling wine?" And you're like, "Oh yes, it's just wonderful." Yeah. We love it. Yeah, <laughs> it's right next door to Night Train. Well, actually, oh, actually, me and the me and the barman didn't used to recommend it. Funnily enough, because <laughs> um, you, you know you can only take a lie so far. <laughs> 
very true. Because yeah, that that somebody somebody we hadn't recommended to them did buy a bottle of that, and at the end of the meal, we still had half a bottle of it left. <laughs> <laughs> and and they were like, oh oh, we've left that for the staff. And the waitresses <laughs> were like, oh great, and I'm like, no, you don't want to go there. The staff is like, can we? We'll just use that to clean the toilet. That'll be fine. No, the, the staff were going to drink it. No, Scottish, I'm saying that's. But... I'm sure what you were saying. Yeah. No, just I, use it to funnily clean enough, the, the more insistent staff got to try it and then regretted it. Um, <laughs> Funny how that works, isn't it? Yeah. And Jeannie, you worked in a bar, so I'm sure you've had that experience too. Yes, ma'am. I'm still stuck on you saying that there was wine in the grocery store. So Pennsylvania can't do that. Oh, we have, let me put it to you this way. We have 12 aisles of wine. Like, they're not big aisles, but we've got 12 aisles of wine, and then we have our own liquor store next door. Oh, yeah, you can't do that in Pennsylvania either. Yeah, well, you know, they've cornered the market on it. You guys have got, what, not party stores, they're, they're, they're packies, right? They're government-run? Yeah, ABC stores, yeah. They're, um, they're, yeah. they're state-run. Um, yeah. State-run liquor stores. Uh, now, like beer, um, beer and stuff, you can get at a distributor that's not necessarily state-run, but right. all of the liquor stores um, are state-licensed, state-run stores. Um, and what is really funny is you could, and I don't know if you can anymore, it's been a long time since I ever wanted to buy any. But for the longest time, if you went into the liquor store and specifically asked them for grain alcohol, they could sell it to you. Right. You know, they could sell you 190 proof, but you right. had to ask for it. They couldn't have. They couldn't show have it on it display. That they couldn't tell you that they had it. You <laughs> had to specifically ask them for it. And you know, I mean, it's you know, it's moonshine. Yeah, I, I I think when I was a teenager, we used to just get bottles of that and bottles of it and, and gallons of you know belly washes. That really nasty colored water that they sell at the grocery stores. Some of it's yeah. fruit punch flavored, some of it's orange oh, flavored, yeah. some of it's, oh yeah. We used to just get that in a gallon of whatever and just have a party with that. Yeah, we used to make, um, and they they called it trash can. Um, we didn't actually make a trash can, but it it was you know fruit drink and Seven Up and all kinds of fruit, you know cherries, oranges, apple slices, grapes, whatever. Basically, homebrew mud dog twenty twenty. Well, you know, you mixed all of this stuff together, right? And then that's what you drank. And the only thing I'm going to tell you is, if you don't see eat the fruit, if you see a cherry um, in a punch bowl, and said cherry is white, do <laughs> not eat it. Yeah, you really don't want to. You don't. Well, I, I, I had a tradition. I used to make punch for events when I was working in the hotel, and mm -hmm. um, and uh, the one for my twenty-first uh, birthday party, <laughs> I made a punch. Right. And one of the coach drivers was a bit of an alcoholic, <laughs> and God. and he had half a glass and had to go lie down, <laughs> which was more than most people managed to drink. But it it was wonderful. It tasted of strawberry. That's all it tasted of. 
that's kind of what I liked about, and I hate to say this, it's kind of what's good about grain alcohol, is that it, it really does pick up the taste of whatever you mix with it. Yeah. yeah. It's not really harsh. No. It's not really much of anything unless you're going to take up fire breathing. It's really much as <laughs> strong. It is that. Well, it is strong, but I'm just saying it's it's like, it's strong, but it's not disgusting. You know what I mean? Some liquor is just disgusting. This is why I don't drink. <laughs> but uh, you, you know what I'm saying. If um, you can mix it with something and make it taste good, it's okay. What? The best thing about being young and dumb, do you want to know the best <laughs> about it is? You outgrow that shit. And if you learn when you're young and dumb and you have the resilience to get over it faster, that's good. Because I am here to tell you, I had some three-day hangovers in my 20s. I, no, 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 no. Okay, you okay, know, Jeannie, if this is the case, explain Scotland and Ireland. <laughs> you, oh, and I should also say tolerance. I've never had a hangover. Yep. You have higher tolerances. You're just It's the climate. It's the climate. <laughs> it's the climate. It's the practice at a young age. I think that helps as well. <laughs> yeah, well... Industrial grade livers and kidneys. <laughs> <laughs> All I can say is, like, now... When I was in my teens and in my 20s, a nap was like a punishment. Now... Now it's like a reward. And the idea of going out all night... I can't... I can't even fathom it anymore. I am old. I didn't think it would happen, but it did. Well, I mean... I say that, and it's funny, because when I go to VaporCon, I mean, I was, you know, said something to Alex, I have spent many an evening sitting in the lobby of that hotel just having conversations with Michael Kazi and Drew and Ron Ford. Um, I can't tell you um, the hours that I've sat and talked with them guys, and look at my watch and go, oh, 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 that is daylight. Huh, they set a bitch. I thought they just turned lights on outside the windows of this hotel. They didn't. That's the sun. <laughs> it's different when you're with friends, but I'm just saying, like, a few years ago, um, we went to go see a bunch of bands, and I mean, it was a lot. And I was in my 30s, and it was great. And now that I'm in my 40s, the idea of seeing more than one or two acts, I'm like, I don't think I could stay awake for it now. <laughs> that's that's sad. That's what makes me sad about getting old. Um, youth is kind of wasted on the young who have no knowledge of how much they're going to miss the fun as they get older. Oh, they're too I, damn stupid to appreciate it. Now that I'm back on I alcohol, agree. yeah, I was drinking at Fate Fest UK. Uh, mm -hmm. I can confirm I think my tolerance is still intact because <laughs> despite not really having drunk any alcohol other than the occasional one or two for five years at Vapefest UK I had a third of a bottle of rum and it had no effect whatsoever oh yeah no that's not me it def <laughs> I, de I have never had a tolerance though Never, ever, ever, ever have I had a tolerance because I never drank enough alcohol to get a tolerance. Uh, <laughs> it, it upsets my stomach. It really does. Alcohol bothers my stomach. I can only drink stuff that doesn't taste like goose. Hmm. 
I don't know. I um I don't I don't miss the concerts and stuff. I definitely miss going to clubs and dancing. That stuff I really miss because they don't have they don't have clubs like they used to anymore. Now they just have goth nights here. You know what I mean? Alt nights there. It it's not like it used to be. That's the stuff I miss. That's the stuff I would gladly stay awake for and have a great time. Um, and I wouldn't even drink. I'd just like guzzle a ton of water and just be happy as hell. Oh my Those god! Those things I miss. Yeah, we so derailed the show. That's okay. <laughs> it's okay. It absolutely needed it. It did need it. it. You look at the show notes and tell me that the show didn't need a good derailment after I went off on. <clears throat> The Ottoman Empire. <laughs> <laughs> Uncertain friendly so fire incident. The show notes were um, a little depressing. I I will own that. Yeah, they were a little depressing. <laughs> it actually wasn't so bad. It's honestly, I think the worst stuff that ends up in those show notes actually comes from the best reporters. Mm-hmm. It's usually the stuff from the Intercept that makes me want to cry. But uh, it's good to know that stuff and by the way i completely recommend the intercept as a news source if you want to know what's going on at least with technology their view their viewpoint on the world might not be the same as yours but it's good to broaden your horizons um intercept is great um sometimes wired is good not always um eff's deep link blog is also really great if you're looking for news about your privacy, um, the Digital Fourth Amendment Coalition, also something to look out at. Um, they have some really interesting campaigns that people who are interested in their privacy rights might want to look into. And I guess that's it for this evening. Advert. Advert. Oh, for some reason, it's not playing. Jeannie, playing. Hang on. <laughs> I'm just gonna try something. It's weird. I'm here for the ending this week. Yeah, I Why got spend it? hours searching for in-stock ammunition when you can use AmmoSeek.com. AmmoSeek.com is the search engine for finding ammunition, reloading components, magazines, and guns for more than 300 calibers at more than 60 online retailers. AmmoSeek.com only shows items that are in stock and readily available for shipping. You can search by caliber, grains, manufacturer, and more. The results are displayed by cost per round so you are able to get the very best pricing on your ammunition of choice. Find ammunition at the best prices, fast. Ammoseek.com And thanks for listening, guys. We'll be back next week. I don't know, Jeannie, are you, you might not be back next week because you're going to VaporCon. So I don't know when you're going to get back, but you might be tired. So some Some semblance of this show will be back next week. <laughs> <laughs> And if anyone's oh, at VaporCon, come find me, introduce yourself to me, don't wait for me to stop talking, it never happens. <laughs> Buy her a drink so she can keep up with Blaine. <laughs> That's mean. <laughs> I'm going to be there so it won't, probably won't end well, but um, I have to say Phil Bissardo's, Phil Bissardo is not supposed to be there so I might have a chance to stand sober. <laughs> 
All that matters is that you have a good time. All right, guys. We'll see you next week.